Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. How are you all feeling this week? This hasn't been an easy week for many, and my heart goes out to my listeners in New Zealand, and frankly, to everyone who has had their world rocked once again by senseless violence. I've said before that I hope this podcast can create a small escape for you, and I wish that more than ever now. My submissions this week all felt a little too real, so I've decided to put them on hold until next episode. Tonight, I want to read you some classic horror. Some of these will be very familiar, and some you've probably never heard of. Either way, I hope they will be a little more fantastical and you can lose yourself in a world that feels scary in a fun way. Just a quick reminder before we get started. You have until April 1st to send me your kids' stories. I hope to hear from you all soon. Tonight, I'm going to start us off with a story I had actually never heard of before this week. If you're a fan of classical haunted mansion type creepy, then you will love this very scary tale written by Amelia B. Edwards and published in 1864. Also, if you're in the Facebook group, you know that I had some audio issues and lost a whole bunch of saved files overnight. Basically, for some reason, this particular story reset itself to a much earlier save, and I had to re-record the last 10 or 15 minutes and redo all the sound effects. I apologize for any background noise. I usually avoid recording on Thursdays because that is both trash day and the day the landscaper for our building comes. Enough with my tech issues. I present to you, The Phantom Coach. The circumstances I am about to relate to you have truth to recommend them. They happened to myself, and my recollection of them is as vivid as if they had taken place only yesterday. Twenty years, however, have gone by since that night. During those twenty years, I have told the story to but one other person. I tell it now with a reluctance which I find it difficult to overcome. All I entreat, meanwhile, is that you will abstain from forcing your own conclusions upon me. I want nothing explained away. I desire no arguments. My mind on this subject is quite made up, and having the testimony of my own senses to rely upon, I prefer to abide by it. Well, it was just twenty years ago and within a day or two of the end of the grouse season, I had been out all day with my gun and had had no sport to speak of. The wind was due east, the month December, the place a bleak, wide moor in the far north of England, and I had lost my way. It was not a pleasant place in which to lose one's way, with the first feathery flakes of a coming snowstorm just fluttering down upon the heather and the leaden evening closing in all around. I shaded my eyes with my hand and staled anxiously into the gathering darkness, 
where the purple moorland melted into a range of low hills, some 10 or 12 miles distant. Not the faintest smoke wreath, not the tiniest cultivated patch or fence or sheep track met my eyes in any direction. There was nothing for it but to walk on and take my chance of finding what shelter I could by the way. So I shouldered my gun again and pushed wearily forward, for I had been on foot since an hour after daybreak and had eaten nothing since breakfast. Meanwhile, the snow began to come down with ominous steadiness, and the wind fell. After this, the cold became more intense, and the night came rapidly up. As for me, my prospects darkened with the darkening sky, and my heart grew heavy as I thought how my young wife was already watching for me through the window of our little inn parlor, and thought of all the suffering in store for her throughout the weary night. We had been married four months, and having spent our autumn in the highlands, we were now lodging in a remote village situated just on the verge of the great English moorlands. We were very much in love, and of course very happy. This morning, when we parted, she had implored me to return before dusk, and I had promised her that I would. What would I not have given to have kept my word? Even now, Weary as I was, I felt that with a supper, an hour's rest, and a guide, I might still get back to her before midnight, if only guide and shelter could be found. And all this time the snow fell, and the night thickened. I stopped and shouted every now and then, but my shouts seemed only to make the silence deeper. Then a vague sense of uneasiness came upon me and I began to remember stories of travelers who had walked on and on in the falling snow until, wearied out, they were fain to lie down and sleep their lives away. Would it be possible, I asked myself, to keep on thus through all the long dark night? Would there not come a time when my limbs must fail and my resolution give way, when I too must sleep the sleep of death. Death. I shuddered. How hard to die just now when life lay all so bright before me. How hard for my darling, whose whole loving heart, but that thought was not to be born. To banish it, I shouted again, louder and longer, and then listened eagerly. Was my shout answered, or did I only fancy that I heard a far-off cry? I hollowed again and again, the echo followed, then a wavering speck of light came suddenly out of the dark, shifting, disappearing, growing momentarily nearer and brighter. Running toward it at full speed, I found myself, to my great joy, face to face with an old man and a lantern. Thank God, was the exclamation that burst involuntarily from my lips. Blinking and frowning, he lifted his lantern and peered into my face. What for? growled he sulkily. Well, for you, I began to fear I should be lost in the snow. Eh, then, folks do get cast away hereabouts for time to time, and what's to hinder you from being cast away likewise, if the Lord's so minded? If the Lord is so minded that you and I shall be lost together, friend, 
We must submit, I replied. But I don't mean to be lost without you. How far am I now from Dwolding? A good twenty mile, more or less. And the nearest village? The nearest village is Wyke, and that's twelve mile to other side. Where do you live, then? Out yonder, he said with a vague jerk of the lantern. You're going home, I presume? Maybe I am. Then I'm going with you. The old man shook his head and rubbed his nose reflectively with the handle of the lantern. It ain't to no use, growled he. He ain't let you in, not he. We'll see about that, I replied briskly. Who is he? The master. Who is the master? That's now to you, was the unceremonious reply. Well, well, you lead the way, and I'll engage that the master shall give me shelter and supper tonight. Eh, you can try him, muttered the reluctant guide, and still shaking his head, he hobbled, gnome-like, away through the falling snow. A large mass loomed up presently out of the darkness, and a huge dog rushed out, barking furiously. Is this the house? I asked. Aye, it's the house. Down, Bay. And he fumbled in his pocket for the key. I drew up close behind him, prepared to lose no chance of entrance, and saw in the little circle of light shed by the lantern that the door was heavily studded with iron nails like the door of a prison. In another minute, he had turned the key, and I had pushed past him into the house. Once inside, I looked round with curiosity and found myself in a great raftered hall, which served, apparently, a variety of uses. One end was piled to the roof with corn, like a barn. The other was stored with flour sacks, agricultural implements, casks, and all kinds of miscellaneous lumber, while from the beams overhead hung rows of hams, flitches, and bunches of dried herbs for winter use. In the center of the floor stood some huge object, gauntly dressed in a dingy wrapping cloth, and reaching halfway to the rafters. Lifting a corner of this cloth, I saw, to my surprise, a telescope of very considerable size mounted on a rude, movable platform, with four small wheels. The tube was made of painted wood, bound round with bands of metal rudely fashioned. The speculum, so far as I could estimate its size in the dim light, measured at least fifteen inches in diameter. While I was yet examining the instrument, and asking myself whether it was not the work of some self-taught optician, a bell rang, sharply. That's for you, said my guide with a malicious grin. Yonder's his room. He pointed to a low black door at the opposite side of the hall. I crossed over, rapped somewhat loudly, and went in, without waiting for an invitation. A huge, white-haired old man rose from a table covered with books and papers, and confronted me sternly. "'Who are you?' he said. "'How came you here? 
What do you want? James Murray, barrister at law, on foot across the moor. Meet, drink, and sleep. He bent his bushy brows into a portentous frown. Mine is not a house of entertainment, he said haughtily. Jacob, how dared you admit this stranger? I didn't admit him, grumbled the old man. He followed me over the mirror and shouldered his way in before me. I'm no match for six foot two. And pray, sir, by what right have you forced an entrance into my house? The same by which I should have clung to your boat if I were drowning. The right of self-preservation. Self-preservation. There's an inch of snow on the ground already, I replied briefly, and it would be deep enough to cover my body before daybreak. He strode to the window, pulled aside a heavy black curtain, and looked out. It's true, he said. You can stay, if you choose, till morning. Jacob served the supper. With this, he waved me to a seat, resumed his own, and became at once absorbed in the studies from which I had disturbed him. I placed my gun in a corner, drew a chair to the hearth, and examined my quarters at leisure. Smaller and less incongruous in its arrangements in the hall, this room contained, nevertheless, much to awaken my curiosity. The floor was carpetless, the whitewashed walls were in parts scrawled over with strange diagrams, and in others covered with shelves crowded with philosophical instruments, the uses of many of which were unknown to me. On one side of the fireplace stood a bookcase filled with dingy folios. On the other, a small organ, fantastically decorated with painted carvings of medieval saints and devils. Through the half-open door of a cupboard at the further end of the room, I saw a long array of geological specimens, surgical preparations, crucibles, retorts, and jars of chemicals, while on the mantel shelf beside me, amid a number of small objects, stood a model of the solar system, a small galvanic battery, and a microscope. Every chair had its burden, every corner was heaped high with books. The very floor was littered over with maps, casts, papers, tracings, and learned lumber of all conceivable kinds. I stared about me with an amazement increased by every fresh object upon which my eyes chanced to rest. So strange a room I had never seen, yet seemed it stranger still to find such a room in a lone farmhouse amid those wild and solitary moors. Over and over again, I looked from my host to his surroundings, and from his surroundings back to my host, asking myself who and what he could be. His head was singularly fine, but it was more the head of a poet than of a philosopher. Broad in the temples, prominent over the eyes, and, and clothed with a rough profusion of perfectly white hair. It had all the ideality and much of the ruggedness that characterizes the head of Louis von Beethoven. 
There were the same deep lines about the mouth and the same stern furrows in the brow. There was the same concentration of expression. While I was yet observing him, the door opened and Jacob brought in the supper. His master then closed his book, rose and, with more courtesy of manner than he'd yet shown, invited me to the table. A dish of ham and eggs, a loaf of brown bread, and a bottle of admirable sherry were placed before me. I have but the homeliest farmhouse fare to offer you, sir, said my entertainer. Your appetite, I trust, will make up for the deficiencies of our larder. I had already fallen upon the viands, and now protested, with the enthusiasm of a starving sportsman, that I had never eaten anything so delicious. He bowed stiffly and sat down to his own supper, which consisted, primitively, of a jug of milk and a basin of porridge. We ate in silence, and when we had done, Jacob removed the tray. I then drew my chair back to the fireside. My host, somewhat to my surprise, did the same, and turning abruptly towards me, he said, Sir, I have lived here in strict retirement for three and twenty years. During that time, I have not seen as many strange faces, and I have not read a single newspaper. You are the first stranger who has crossed my threshold for more than four years. Will you favor me with a few words of information respecting that outer world from which I have parted company so long? Pray, interrogate me, I replied. I am heartily at your service. He bent his head in acknowledgement, leaned forward, with his elbows resting on his knees and his chin supported in the palms of his hands, stared fixedly into the fire, and then proceeded to question me. His inquiries related chiefly to scientific matters, with the later progresses of which, as applied to the practical purposes of life, he was almost wholly unacquainted. No student of science myself, I replied, as well as my slight information permitted. But the task was far from easy, and I was much relieved when, passing from interrogation to discussion, he began pouring forth his own conclusions upon the facts which I had been attempting to place before him. He talked, and I listened, spellbound. He talked till I believe he almost forgot my presence, and only thought aloud. I had never heard anything like it. I have never heard anything like it since. Familiar with all systems of philosophies, subtle in analysis, bold in generalization, he poured forth his thoughts in an uninterrupted stream, and, still leaning forward in the same moody attitude with his eyes fixed upon the fire, wandered from topic to topic, from speculation to speculation like an inspired dreamer, from practical science to mental philosophy, from electricity in the wire to electricity in the nerve, from Watts to Mesmer, from Mesmer to Reichenbach, from Reichenbach to Swedenborg, Spinoza, Condiac, Descartes, Berkeley, Aristotle, Plato, and the Magi and Mystics of the East were transitions which, however bewildering in their variety and scope, seemed easy and harmonious upon his lips as sequences in music. 
by and by, I forget now, by what link of conjecture or illustration, he passed on to that field which lies beyond the boundary of line, of even conjectural philosophy, and reaches no man knows whither. He spoke of the soul and its aspirations, of the spirit and its powers, of second sight, of prophecy, of those phenomena which under the names of ghosts, specters, and supernatural appearances have been denied by the skeptics and attested by the credulous of all ages. The world, he said, grows hourly more and more skeptical of all that lies beyond its own narrow radius, and our men of science foster the fatal tendency. They condemn as fable all that resists experiment. They reject as false all that cannot be brought to the test of the laboratory or the dissecting room. Against what superstition have they waged so long and obstinate a war as against the belief in apparitions? And yet what superstition has maintained its hold upon the minds of men so long and so firmly? Show me any fact in physics in history and archaeology, which is supported by testimony so wide and so various, attested by all races of men, in all ages, and in all climates, by the soberest sages of antiquity, by the rudest savage of today, by the Christian, the pagan, the pantheist, the materialist, the phenomenon, is treated as a nursery tale by the philosophers of our century. Circumstantial evidence weighs with them as a feather in the balance. The comparison of causes with effects, however valuable in physical science, is put aside as worthless and unreliable. The evidence of competent witnesses, however conclusive in a court of justice, counts for nothing. He who pauses before he pronounces is condemned as a trifler. He who believes is a dreamer or a fool. He spoke with bitterness, and, having said thus, relapsed for some minutes into silence. Presently he raised his head from his hands and added with an altered voice and manner, I, sir, paused, investigated, believed, and was not ashamed to state my convictions to the world. I, too, was branded as a visionary, held up to ridicule by my contemporaries, and hooted from that field of science in which I had labored with honor during all the best years of my life. These things happened just three and twenty years ago. Since then, I have lived as you see me living now, and the world has forgotten me as I have forgotten the world. You have my history. It, it is a very sad one, I murmured, scarcely knowing what to answer. It is a very common one, he replied. I have only suffered for the truth, as many a better and wiser man has suffered before me. He rose as if desirous of ending the conversation and went over to the window. It has ceased snowing, he observed as he dropped the curtain and came back to the fireside. 
seized, I exclaimed, starting eagerly to my feet. Oh, if it were only possible. But no, it is so hopeless. Even if I could find my way across the moor, I could not walk twenty miles tonight. Walk twenty miles tonight? repeated my host. What are you thinking of? Of my wife, I replied impatiently. Of my young wife, who does not know that I have lost my way, and who is at this moment breaking her heart with suspense and terror. Where is she? At Dwolding. Twenty miles away. At Dwolding, he echoed thoughtfully. Yes, the distance, it is true, it is twenty miles, but are you so very anxious to save the next six or eight hours? So very, very anxious that I would give ten guineas at this point for a guide and a horse. Your wish can be gratified at a less costly rate, said he, smiling. The night mail from the north, which changes horses at Dwalding, passes within five miles of this post, and will be due at a certain crossroad in about an hour and a quarter. If Jacob were to go with you across the moor and put you on the old coach road, you could find your way, I suppose, to where it joins the new one? Easily. Gladly. He smiled again rang the bell, gave the old servant his directions, and, taking a bottle of whiskey and a wine glass from the cupboard in which he kept his chemicals, said, The snow lies deep, and it will be difficult walking tonight on the moor. A glass of Osquaba before you start? I would have declined the spirit, but he pressed it on me, and I drank it. It went down my throat like liquid flame and almost took my breath away. It is strong, he said, but it will help to keep out the cold. And now you have no moments to spare. Good night. I thanked him for his hospitality and would have shaken hands, but that he had turned away before I could finish my sentence. In another minute, I had traversed the hall. Jacob had locked the outer door behind me, and we were out on the wide white moor. Although the wind had fallen, it was still bitterly cold. Not a star glimmered in the black vault overhead. Not a sound save the rapid crunching of the snow beneath our feet disturbed the heaviness of the night. Jacob, not too well pleased with his mission, shambled on before in sullen silence, his lantern in his hand and his shadow at his feet. I followed, my gun over my shoulder as little inclined for a conversation as himself. My thoughts were full of my late host. His voice yet rang in my ears. His eloquence yet held my imagination captive. I remember to this day, with surprise, how my overexcited brain retained whole sentences and parts of sentences, troops of brilliant images and fragments of splendid reasoning, in the very words in which he had uttered them, musing thus over what I had heard and striving to recall a lost link here and there, I strode on at the heels of my guide, absorbed and unobservant. Presently, at the end, as it seemed to me, of only a few minutes, 
He came to a sudden halt and said, Gone's your road. Keep the stone fence to your right hand and you can't fail of the way. This, then, is the old coach road? Aye, tis the old coach road. And how far do I go before I reach the crossroads? Nigh upon three mile. I pulled out my purse and he became much more communicative. The road's a fair road enough, he said, for foot passengers, but twas over steep and narrow for the northern traffic. You'll mind where the parapet's broken away. Close again the signpost. It's never been mended since the accident. What accident? Eh, the night mail pitched right over into the valley below, a good fifty feet and more, just at the worst bit of the road in the whole country. Horrible. Were many lives lost? All. Four were found dead, and the other two and died the next morning. How long since this happened? Just nine years. Near the signpost, you say? I will bear it in mind. Good night. Good night, sir, and thank ye. Jacob pocketed his half-crown, made a faint pretense of his touching his hat, and trudged back to the way he had come. I watched the light of his lantern till it quite disappeared, and then turned to pursue my way alone. This was no longer a matter of the slightest difficulty, for, despite the dead darkness overhead, the line of the stone fence showed distinctly enough against the pale gleam of the snow. How silent it seemed now, with only my footsteps to listen to. How silent and how solitary. A strange, disagreeable sense of loneliness stole over me. I walked faster. I hummed a fragment of a tune. I cast up enormous sums in my head and accumulated them at compound interest. I did my best, in short, to forget the startling speculations to which I had but just been listening, and, to some extent, I succeeded. Meanwhile, the night air seemed to be colder and colder, and though I walked fast, I found it impossible to keep myself warm. My feet were like ice. I lost sensation in my hands and grasped my gun mechanically. I even breathed with difficulty, as though instead of traversing a quiet north country highway, I were scaling the uppermost heights of some gigantic alp. This last symptom became presently so distressing that I was forced to stop for a few minutes and lean against the stone fence. As I did so, I chanced to look back up the road, and there, to my infinite relief, I saw a distant point of light, like the gleam of an approaching lantern. I at first concluded that Jacob had retraced his steps and followed me, but even as the conjecture presented itself, a second light flashed into sight. A light evidently parallel with the first, and approaching at the same rate of motion. It needed no second thought to show me that these must be the carriage lamps of some private vehicle, though it seems strange that any private vehicle should take a road professedly disused and dangerous. There could be no doubt, however, of the fact, for the lamps grew larger and brighter every moment, and I even fancied I could already see the dark outline of the carriage between them. It was coming up very fast, and quite noiselessly, 
the snow being nearly a foot deep under the wheels. And now the body of the vehicle became distinctly visible behind the lamps. It looked strangely lofty. A sudden suspicion flashed upon me. Was it possible that I had passed the crossroads in the dark without observing the signpost? And this could be the very coach which I had come to meet? No need to ask myself that question a second time, for here it came round the bend of the road, guard and driver, one outside passenger and four steaming greys, all wrapped in a soft haze of light through which the lamps blazed out like a pair of fiery meteors. I jumped forward, waved my hat and shouted. The mail came down at full speed and passed me. For a moment, I feared that I had not been seen or heard, but it was only for a moment. The coachman pulled up, the guard, muffled to the eyes and capes and comforters, and apparently sound asleep in the rumble, neither answered my hail nor made the slightest effort to dismount. The outside passenger did not even turn his head. I opened the door for myself and looked in. There were but three travelers inside, so I stepped in, shut the door, slipped into the vacant corner and congratulated myself on my good fortune. The atmosphere of the coach seemed, if possible, colder than that of the outer air, and was pervaded by a singularly damp and disagreeable smell. I looked round at my fellow passengers. They were all three men and all silent. They did not seem to be asleep, but each leaned back in his corner of the vehicle, as if absorbed by his own reflections. I attempted to open a conversation. <laughs> How intensely cold is it tonight? I said, addressing my opposite neighbor. He lifted his head, looked at me, but made no reply. The winter, I added, seems to have begun in earnest. Although the corner in which he sat was so dim that I could distinguish none of his features very clearly, I saw that his eyes were still turned full upon me. And yet, he answered never a word. At any other time, I should have felt and perhaps expressed some annoyance, but at the moment I felt too ill to do either. The icy coldness of the night air had struck a chill to my very marrow, and the strange smell inside the coach was affecting me with an intolerable nausea. I shivered from head to foot and, turning to my left-hand neighbor, asked if he had any objection to an open window. He neither spoke nor stirred. I repeated the question somewhat more loudly, but with the same result. Then I lost patience and let the sash down. As I did so, the leather strap broke in my hand, and I observed that the glass was covered with a thick coat of mildew the accumulation, apparently, of years. My attention being thus drawn to the condition of the coach, I examined it more narrowly and saw by the uncertain light of the outer lamps that it was in the last stage of dilapidation. Every part of it was not only out of repair, but in a condition of decay. The sashes splintered at a touch. The leather fittings were crusted over with mold and literally rotting from the woodwork. The floor was almost breaking away beneath my feet. 
The whole machine, in short, was foul with damp, and had evidently been dragged from some outhouse in which it had been moldering away for years to do another day or two of duty on the road. I turned to the third passenger, whom I had not yet addressed, and hazarded one more remark. The coach, I said, is in a deplorable condition. The regular mail, I suppose, is under repair? He moved his head slowly and looked me in the face without speaking a word. I shall never forget that look while I live. I turned cold at heart under it. I turn cold at heart even now when I recall it. His eyes glowed with a fiery, unnatural luster. His face was livid as the face of a corpse. His bloodless lips were drawn back as if in the agony of death and showed the gleaming teeth between. The words I was about to utter died upon my lips, and a strange horror, a dreadful horror, came upon me. My sight had by this time become used to the gloom of the coach, and I could see with tolerable distinctness. I turned to my opposite neighbor. He, too, was looking at me with the same startling pallor in his face and the same stony glitter in his eyes. I passed my hand across my brow. I turned the passenger on the seat beside my own and saw. Oh heaven, how shall I describe what I saw? I saw that he was no living man, that none of them were living men, like myself. A pale phosphorescent light, the light of putrefaction, played upon their awful faces, upon their hair, dank with the dews of the grave, upon their clothes, earth-stained and dropping to pieces, upon their hands, which were as the hands of corpses long buried, only their eyes, their terrible eyes, were living, and those eyes were all turned menacingly upon me. A shriek of terror, a wild, unintelligible cry for help and mercy burst from my lips as I flung myself against the door and strove in vain to open it. In that single instant, brief and vivid as a landscape held in the flash of summer lightning, I saw the moon shining down through a rift of stormy cloud. The ghastly sight post rearing its warning finger by the wayside, the broken parapet, the plunging horses, the black gulf below. Then the coach reeled like a ship at sea. Then came a mighty crash, a sense of crushing pain. And then darkness. It seemed as if years had gone by when I awoke one morning from a deep sleep and found my wife watching by my bedside. I will pass over the scene that ensued and give you, in half a dozen words, the tale she told me with tears of thanksgiving. I had fallen over a precipice, close against the junction of the old coach road and the new, and had only been saved from certain death by 
lighting upon a deep snowdrift that had accumulated at the foot of the rock beneath. In this snowdrift, I was discovered at daybreak by a couple of shepherds, who carried me to the nearest shelter and brought a surgeon to my aid. The surgeon found me in a state of raving delirium, with a broken arm and a compound fracture of the skull. The letters in my pocketbook showed my name and address. My wife was summoned to nurse me, and thanks to youth and a fine constitution, I came out of danger at last. The place of my fall, I could scarcely say, was precisely that at which a frightful accident had happened to the North Mail nine years earlier. I never told my wife the fearful events which I have just related to you. I told the surgeon who attended me, but he treated the whole adventure as a mere dream born of the fever in my brain. We discussed the question over and over again until we found that we could discuss it with temper no longer and we dropped it. Others may form what conclusions they please. I know that 20 years ago, I was the fourth inside passenger in that phantom coach. This next story is called The Pale Man by Julius Long. It was originally published in Weird Tales magazine in 1934. not yet met the man in number 212. I do not even know his name. He never patronizes the hotel restaurant, and he does not use the lobby. On the three occasions when we passed each other by, we did not speak, although we nodded in a semi-cordial, non-committal way. I should like very much to make his acquaintance. It is lonesome in this dreary place, with the exception of the aged lady down the corridor. The only permanent guests are the man in 212 and myself. However, I should not complain, for this utter quiet is precisely what the doctor prescribed. I wonder if the man in 212 too has come here for a rest. He is so very pale. Yet I cannot believe that he is ill, for his paleness is not of a sickly cast, but rather wholesome in its ivory clarity. His carriage is that of a man enjoying the best of health. He is tall and straight. He walks erectly and with a brisk athletic stride. His pallor is no doubt congenital, else he would quickly tan under this burning summer sun. He must have traveled here by auto, for he certainly was not a passenger on the train that brought me, and he checked in only a short time after my arrival. I had briefly rested in my room and was walking down the stairs when I encountered him ascending with his bag. It is odd that our venerable bellboy did not show him to his room. It is odd, too, that with so many vacant rooms in the hotel, he should have chosen number 212, at the extreme rear. The building is a long, narrow affair, three stories high. The rooms are all on the east side, 
as the west wall is flush with a decrepit business building. The corridor is long and drab, and its stiff, bloated paper exudes a musty, unpleasant odor. The feeble electric bulbs that light it shine dimly as from a tomb. Revolted by this corridor, I insisted vigorously upon being given number 201, which is at the front and blessed with southern exposure. The room clerk, a disagreeable fellow with a Hitler mustache, was very reluctant to let me have it, as it is ordinarily reserved for his more profitable, transient trade. I fear my stubborn insistence has made him an enemy. If only I had been as self-assertive thirty years ago, I should now be a full-fledged professor instead of a broken-down assistant. I still smart from the cavalier manner in which the president of the university summarily recommended my vacation. No doubt he acted for my best interests. The people who have dominated my poor life invariably have. Oh, well, the summer's rest will probably do me considerable good. It is pleasant to be away from the university. There's something positively gratifying about the absence of the graduate student face. If only it were not so lonely. I must devise a way of meeting the pale man in number 212. Perhaps the room clerk can arrange matters. I have been here exactly a week. And if there is a friendly soul in this miserable little town, he has escaped my notice. Although the tradespeople accept my money with flattering eagerness, they studiously avoid even the most casual conversation. I am afraid I can never cultivate their society unless I can arrange to have my ancestors recognized as local residents for the last 150 years. Despite the coolness of my reception, I have been frequently venturing abroad. In the back of my mind, I have cherished hopes that I might encounter the pale man in number 211. Incidentally, I wonder why he has moved from 212. There is certainly a little advantage in coming only one room nearer to the front. I noticed the change yesterday, when I saw him coming out of his new room. We nodded again, and this time I thought I detected a certain malign satisfaction in his somber black eyes. He must know that I am eager to make his acquaintance. Yet his manner forbids overtures. If he wants to make me go all the way, he can go to the devil. I am not the sort to run after anybody. Indeed, the surly diffidence of the room clerk has been enough to prevent me from questioning him about his mysterious guest. I wonder where the pale man takes his meals. I have been absenting myself from the hotel restaurant and patronizing the restaurants outside. At each, I have ventured inquiries about the man in 210. No one at any restaurant remembered his having been there. Perhaps he has entry into the Brahmin homes of the town. And again, he may have found a boarding house. I shall have to learn if there be one. The pale man must be difficult to please, for he has again changed his room. I am baffled by his conduct. 
if he is so desirous of locating himself more conveniently in the hotel, why does he not move to number 202, which is the nearest available room to the front? Perhaps I can make his inability to locate himself permanently an excuse for starting a conversation. I see we are closer neighbors now, I might casually say. That is too banal. I must await a better opportunity. He has done it again. He is now occupying number 209. I am intrigued by his little game. I waste hours trying to fathom its point. What possible motive could he have? I should think he would get on the hotel people's nerves. I wonder what our combination bellhop chambermaid thinks of having to prepare four rooms for a single guest. If he were not stone deaf, I would ask him. At present, I feel too exhausted to attempt such an enervating conversation. I am tremendously interested in the pale man's next move. He must either skip a room or remain where he is for a permanent guest... A very old lady occupies number 208. She has not budged from her room since I have been here, and I imagine that she does not intend to. I wonder what the pale man will do. I await his decision with the nervous excitement of a devotee of the track on the eve of a big race. After all, I have so little diversion. Well, the mysterious guest was not forced to remain where he was, nor did he have to skip a room. The lady in number 208 simplified matters by conveniently dying. No one knows the cause of her death, but it is generally attributed to old age. She was buried this morning. I was among the curious few who attended her funeral. When I returned home from the mortuary, it was in time to see the pale man leaving her room. Already he has moved in. He favored me with a smile whose meaning I have tried in vain to decipher. I cannot but believe that he meant it to have some significance. He acted as if there were between us some secret that I failed to appreciate. But then perhaps his smile was meaningless, after all, and only ambiguous by chance, like that of the Mona Lisa. My man of mystery now resides in number 207, and I am not the least surprised. I would have been astonished if he had not made his scheduled move. I have almost given up trying to understand his eccentric conduct. I do not know a single thing more about him than I knew the day he arrived. I wonder whence he came. There's something indefinably foreign about his manner. I'm curious to hear his voice. I like to imagine that he speaks the exotic tongue of some faraway country. If only I could somehow unveil him into conversation. I wish that I were possessed of the glib assurance of a college boy who can address himself to the most distinguished celebrity without patting an eye. It's no wonder that I am only an assistant professor. I am worried. This morning I awoke to find myself lying prone upon the floor. I was fully clothed, I must have fallen exhausted there after I returned to my room last night. I wonder if my condition is more serious 
than I had suspected. Until now, I have been inclined to discount the fears of those who have pulled a long face about me. For the first time, I recall the prolonged handclasp of the president when he bade me goodbye from the university. Obviously, he never expected to see me alive again. Of course, I'm not that unwell. Nevertheless, I must be more careful. Thank heaven I have no dependents to worry about. I have not even a wife, for I was never willing to exchange the loneliness of a bachelor for the loneliness of a husband. I can say in all sincerity that the prospect of death does not frighten me. Speculation about life beyond the grave has always bored me. Whatever it is or is not, I'll try to get along been so preoccupied about the sudden turn of my own affairs that I have neglected to make note of a most extraordinary incident. The pale man has done an astounding thing. He has skipped three rooms and moved all the way to number 203. We are now very close neighbors. We shall meet oftener and my chances for making his acquaintance are now greater. I have confined myself to my bed during the last few days, and have had my food brought to me. I even called a local doctor, whom I suspect to be a quack. He looked me over with professional indifference and told me not to leave my room. For some reason, he does not want me to climb stairs. For this bit of information, he received a $10 bill, which... As I directed him, he fished out of my coat pocket. A pickpocket could not have done it better. He had not been gone long when I was visited by the room clerk. That worthy suggested with a great show of kindly concern that I use the facilities of the local hospital. It was so modern and all that, with more firmness than I have been able to muster in a long time, I gave him to understand that I intended to remain where I am. Frowning sullenly, he stiffly retired. The doctor must have paused long enough downstairs to tell him a pretty story. It is obvious that he is afraid I shall die in his best room. The pale man is up to his old tricks. Last night when I tottered down the hall, the door of number 202 was ajar. Without thinking, I looked inside. The pale man sat in a rocking chair, idly smoking a cigarette. He looked up into my eyes and smiled that peculiar, ambiguous smile that has me so deeply puzzled. I moved on down the corridor, not so much mystified as annoyed. The whole mystery of the man's conduct is beginning to irk me. It is all so inane, so utterly lacking in motive, I feel that I shall never meet the pale man. But at least I am going to learn his identity. Tomorrow I shall ask for the room clerk and deliberately interrogate him.
I know the identity of the pale man, and I know the meaning of his smile. Early this afternoon, I summoned the room clerk to my bedside. Please tell me, I asked abruptly, who is the man in number 202? The clerk stared wearily and uncomprehendingly. You must be mistaken. That room is unoccupied. Oh, but it is, I snapped in irritation. I myself saw the man there only two nights ago. He is a tall, handsome fellow with dark eyes and hair. He's unusually pale. He checked in the day that I arrived. The hotel man regarded me dubiously as if I were trying to impose upon him. But I assure you there is no such person in the house. As for his checking in when you did, you were the only guest we registered that day. What? Why? I've seen him twenty times. First he had number 212 at the end of the corridor. Then he kept moving toward the front. Now he is next door in 202. The room clerk threw up his hands. You're crazy, he exclaimed. And I saw that he meant what he said. I shut up at once and dismissed him. After he had gone, I heard him rattling the knob of the pale man's door. There's no doubt he believes the room to be empty. Thus, it is that I can now understand the events of the past few weeks. I can now comprehend the significance of the death in number 207. I even feel partly responsible for the old lady's passing. After all, I brought the pale man with me. But it was not I who fixed his path. Why he chose to approach me. Room after room through the length of this dreary hotel. Why his path crossed the threshold of the woman in 207. Those mysteries I cannot explain. I suppose I should have guessed his identity when he skipped the three rooms the night I fell unconscious upon the floor. In a single night of triumph he advanced until he was almost to my door. He will be coming by and by to inhabit this room. His ultimate goal. When he comes I shall at least be able to return his smile of grim recognition. Meanwhile, I have only to wait beyond the bolted door. This next story is one that I know I personally first read in high school, and many of you may have as well. I actually hadn't read it in a long time, and I had forgotten how gruesome it is. It's a really scary story. I really can't believe they had us read it in school. Anyway, I present to you The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs, first published in 1902.
Be careful what you wish for. You may receive it. Part 1 Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess, the former who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chances, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should hardly think that he's come tonight, said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Path's a bog and the road's a torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White as the gate banged too loudly, and heavy footsteps came towards the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door, was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself so that Mrs. White heard tut-tut and coughed gently as her husband entered the room followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing himself. The Sergeant Major took hands and, taking the preferred seat by the fire, watched contentedly as his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest the visitor from distant parts, as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and doughty deeds of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. He don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man. Just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw? said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. 
His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absentmindedly put his glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him again. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is there special about it, inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, said Sergeant Major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manners were so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred somewhat. Well, why don't you have three, sir? said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him the way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. And did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. And has anybody else wished? persisted the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death, and that's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morris, said the old man at last. What do you keep it for? The soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. It has caused me enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy it. They think it's a fairy tale, some of them, and those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me afterward. If you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly. What would you have, then? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. If you don't want it, said the other, give it to me. I won't said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his possession closely. How do you do it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. 
sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set the supper. Do you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket, and placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldiers' adventures in India. If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us, said Herbert as the door closed behind their guest, just in time to catch the last train. We shan't make much out of it. Did you give anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, he said, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Herbert, with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. <laughs> Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. Then you can't be henpecked. He darted around the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then that'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted his words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran towards him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't have the money, said his son, as he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though. There's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again, while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence unusual and depressing settled on all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the rest of the night. I expect you'll find your cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert as he bade them good night. And something horrible squatting on top of your wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it.
The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. Part 2 In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed all over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. I suppose all old soldiers are the same, said Mrs. White. The idea of our listening to such nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt you, father? Might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said the things happened so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed and followed him to the door, watched him down the road and returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired Sergeant Major's bibulous habits when she found that the post had brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand, that I'll swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it, it just, I just had, what's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the 200 pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hands upon it and then, with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White at the same moment placed her hands behind her, and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger who seemed ill at ease into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. I was asked to call, he said at last, and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Ma and Megan's. The old lady started. Is there anything the matter? She asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? 
Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir. And eyed the other wistfully. I'm... I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly. But he's... He is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that thing. She broke off as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned on her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other averted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling hand on his There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery? repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring out the window and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it, as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard. The other coughed and, rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wishes me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss he said, without looking round. I beg that you will understand I am only their servant and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look, such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand, and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror to his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. Part 3 In the huge new cemetery some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to the house steeped in shadows and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen. 
Something else was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectations gave way to resignation. The hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You will be cold. It is cold for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sounds of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden, wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw, she cried wildly. The monkey's paw. He started up in alarm. Where? Where where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. It's in the parlor on the bracket, he replied, marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together, and bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was that not enough? He demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you are mad, he cried aghast. Get it! She panted. Get it quickly and wish. Oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? coincidence, stammered the old man. Go get it in a wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides he, I would not tell you else but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, 
cried the old woman and dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way around the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish! She cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish! Repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank, trembling into a chair as the old woman, with burning eyes, walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window, the candle end which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls, until with a flicker larger than the rest it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief, at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute afterward the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but sat silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time, screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches, and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment, a knock came so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible sounded at the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. A rat, said the old man in shaking tones. A rat, it passed me on the stairs. 
His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert! She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. What are you going to do? He whispered hoarsely. It's my boy! It's Herbert! She cried, struggling mechanically. I forgot! It was two miles away! What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door! For God's sake! Don't let it in! Cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son? She cried, struggling. Let me go! I'm coming! Herbert, I'm coming! There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her, appealing as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the lock. Then the old woman's voice strained and panting. Bolt! Come down! I can't reach it! But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If only he could find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated throughout the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment, he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back, and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. Thanks for listening. This episode went on a bit long. I hope that's okay. I just really wanted to fit these particular stories in. As you can hear, I'm keeping up with the different soothing sounds to play us out. This week is the sound of being on a train, and it's a little preview to the next guided nightmare that will be out soon for my Patreon subscribers. Speaking of Patreon, this week's subscribers and those who I am incredibly grateful for are... Alexis Zagood? I probably botched that. I am so sorry, Alexis. I even tried googling a pronunciation and couldn't find a single one, so please forgive me. And Philip Roberts. You guys are truly amazing, and I couldn't do the show without people like you. Also, like I said last week, 
You can put in a request for your favorite soothing sound effects to play at the end of the show to help you drift off to sleep. Just email me, tweet me, message me on Instagram, leave a comment on Facebook, however you want to reach me. I'm still accepting all submissions for true and fictional scary stories. Just send them to scarytosleep at gmail.com. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scarytosleep. You can follow me personally at Shelby B. Scott. Join our Facebook group to discuss episodes or just share creepy stuff. Facebook.com slash groups slash scarytosleep. You can support the show by rating and reviewing on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. You can rep the show by going to our Teespring store for some merch, which I will link in the show notes. You can go check out our Instagram where I just modeled the new SYTS tank top. I definitely think that's enough for now. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Thank mm-hmm. you.